Before we start today's interview, please allow me a word or two about our podcast. Even as Myanmar plunges into a civil war because of the military's bloody coup, the international community and media organizations have all but turned their backs on the country and its people. But this humble platform is committed to staying the course. We conduct nuanced, long-form interviews with a variety of guests connected to Myanmar so our listeners can better understand the ongoing crisis. Thank you for choosing to spend the next couple of hours with us today. The ongoing crisis in Myanmar has many unsung dimensions to it, things that we might not even think that we're not even thinking about. And yet, the impacts of this coup the, and the impacts of the ongoing violence on the economy, the people, and in today's case, the environment, need to be addressed and they need to be understood. My guest today is going to be discussing specifically the interplay between conflict and environmental factors within the Myanmar context. And I think this is a topic that has completely flown under the radar for most people. But uh, fortunately, they've published an article about it, which will be linked below this. So I strongly encourage anybody who is interested in the topic to go read it. But for now, Enza, uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself for our audience and um, tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. All right. Um, thank you for the invitation uh, to come to talk about our research. Um, so my name is Enze Han, and I'm a social professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Um, so um, the research that we have um, published uh, in, in, in the link that um, you, know, you have already mentioned um, discussed the relationship between um, rock terrain and forest coverage and insurgency uh, in Myanmar. Um, so, um, so specifically in the Myanmar context, our finding mainly is that um, conflict uh, between insurgents and the Myanmar government military uh, most likely to occur in the middle level of forest coverage. Um, so rather they happen, so instead of so instead of conflict occurs at extremely low or very high density of forest, but rather they actually most likely to occur in the medium to somewhat high forest densities locations. So what does that mean? It means that um, there is a very strategic consideration uh, when rebels and uh, government militaries engage in militarized conflict uh, with each other. 
and particularly this uh, reflect on the uh, reasons that uh, usually it is rebel groups that consider forests um, for refuge um, and tactical advantages that give refuge uh, to give rebel groups because um, usually there is this asymmetrical military um, power relations, right? In the sense that rebel groups tend to be less equipped um, um, and less numbered. Uh, so in some ways, forest coverage provide this uh, shelter effect um, for for rebel groups to seek shelter, as well as reduce the, the military advantages for uh, the, the, the you know, better equipped military, uh, government militaries. However, we also so, but this is general, uh, generally the the the, um, the conventional wisdom. But then um, our results also indicate that um, usually it's not like you know more dense, um, denser the forest is, and 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 more conflict. So, but you know, in in some ways, when the forest coverage become too dense, then the, the likelihood for conflict also decreases. So, in some ways, well, our uh, results indicate that is this kind of in, uh, inverted U-shape relationship between uh, conflict and and forest coverage. And so this is so this is a departure from the the previous understanding uh, is is what I'm getting that yes lo- so, looking at the Myanmar context mo- most of the the resistance groups historically have found themselves in areas that have very dense forest coverage and or are very mountainous and very rugged. So we would presume that that's where the conflict is happening. But you're telling us that contrary to to the, the logical conclusion, um, it is not actually in the ethnic uh, minority heartlands where the majority of, of clashes are occurring. Um, so basically, essentially, uh, so essentially, we argue, uh, we point out that, um, you know, conflict um, tend to occur. I mean, historically, that is the case, right? Usually, conflict occurs in the ethnic uh, regions uh, in within Myanmar, and particularly in the, in the borderland area between Myanmar and, and neighboring states, right? And, and in some ways, these areas are uh, in high elevation and with, with denser forest coverage in comparison, let's say, with lower Burma, with you know lower Burma. Burma. Um, but um, this relationship does not really mean that higher the mountain it gets or denser the forest it gets, um, there'll be more conflict, right? Obviously, there is this kind of optimal level of, 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 of a place where rebels can seek shelter, right? It's, 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 which means it's, it's unlikely, for example, for rebels to be engaging in a military conflict in extremely high elevation or extremely mm-hmm. dense forest because those areas... Are in, in, in some ways very difficult to operate, right? Um, so that's why um, we we lo- we find out that um, the places where uh, the conflict occur, uh, in some ways, is at the middle level of, of forest coverage and elevation. Interesting. And what? So in these areas where you have this mid level of coverage and a mid level of elevation. Mm. Who, like, where are these areas exactly? Because we, we sort of think of Myanmar as the central strip of Myanmar is, is reasonably low-lying, flat, lightly forested or not forested at all. And then we think of the, the, the eastern part and the western part as being quite mountainous and rugged. So where would we find these 
intermediate zones and who lives there? So in our data set, um, we, uh, well, so first of all, our data set re- rely upon uh, this existing um, conflict data set called ECLAT. Uh, so basically it is a data set um, called Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, right? So um, it's, it's, it's basically a global data set that re- reports on daily um, militarized conflicts, right? So we basically sub, um, you know, subset uh, within the Myanmar context. Now, within the Myanmar context, we can see that during this, uh, and the, the time period we focused on was from 2010 to 2018. So this obviously was before, um, let's say, the current uh, resistances or since the military coup. But then at that point, most of the armed conflict occurs, um, you know, in in the peripheral states, for example, within Rakhine State, uh, with Shan State, Kachin State, and as well as obviously down to Kaya and the uh, Karen State. Um, so so in, in some ways, that, at that time, um, there's no reported conflicts within, let's say, uh, the you know, different uh, non, non-ethnic uh, regions of Myanmar. Interesting. Interesting. So, so it is still, when we're talking about Rakhine and we're talking about Chin, so these conflicts are still most likely to happen within the um the the states the the predominantly ethnic minority uh, populated states it's it wouldn't come into mandalay region or sagai region or Maguire region itself that would that would not be sufficiently forested is that what you're saying at that time no so at that so, so we, we shouldn't we, we should obviously keep in mind that the time period we looked at was 2010 to 2018 right so during this period obviously and there is no armed resistances within the Bama areas of the country, right? Yes. Um, so, so in some ways, there is this kind of, let's say, you can say it's that specific period of time. But then again, throughout Myanmar, like, like, like modern post-independent um, history of, of Myanmar, right? Most of the, the armed conflict also occur in those mountain regions. So, so in some ways, there is this, I guess um, this, uh, how should I say, relationship in a sense that, first of all, um, it is more likely uh, for conflict to occur between, let's say, Bama areas versus ethnic regions, right? That's basically the pattern of resistance or conflict within mm-hmm. Myanmar for the past 70, 80 years, right? It's usually it's, 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 it's government troops versus rebel groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ethnic, um, ethnic rebel groups. That has always been the case. Now, for Burma areas, um, you know, obviously you can talk about um, the Burmese Communist Party, um, but then even that also, you know, the, the most strongholds, right, during the modern history are also located in the mountain regions, not in the central plain areas. Um, so, so you can see that uh, in general, right, the reason that is the case because central plain areas give government forces tremendous amount of advantage in their military war making. Particularly if it's if area is flat, it's much easier for tanks, for planes to spot, you know, uh, those places and, and basically carry out conventional 
uh, fighting uh, in, in those regions. Um, so, so it is not a coincidence. Uh, basically, even after 1988, for example, many um, pro-democracy people tried to resist uh, the military, military. They went to the Thai Myanmar border regions, right, particularly in Karen State area, uh, because it was much more uh, mountainous and, and, and heavily forested. Um, so, so there is this, I guess, this this correlation, and I think that is generally fair to argue. Even today, you, you can say, "Wow, it is." resistance in Sagan region, but that's still a very small parts of the country, right? Mandalay and Lower Burma are still relatively under control by the central government and Damador. So I find it quite interesting because you, sorry, I take your point um, very well. The, 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 the Myanmar military's sort of strength against the rebel groups can, I, I, would, I would say, be summarized as sort of the three A's. Uh, the armor, the artillery, and the aerial assets. And uh, yes, like all of those favor low-lying planes, uh, and and they all have problems when it comes to mountainous regions, and this is something that we've seen repeated in, for example, the conflict in Afghanistan. We've seen this repeated in insurgencies in the Caucasus region. But you say that the strongholds of the military are themselves in mountainous regions. I think uh, Pa'an, uh, would be would be a good example of that. Why is it then that the military who is so strong in plains would still build their bases uh, in mountainous regions? Um, so I think you, you mentioned, for example, a military try to gain strong strong foothold in areas that are higher in you know in, in, in elevation or in, in forest areas like Pa'an and other places, right? But this is most likely a after-fact rather than before. So in the sense that, um, so con- tr- like conventionally, it should not be the case because um, generally speaking, right, it is the lower central plain areas that is the strong foothold for the Myanmar military. But then since, since the, obviously, the, the, you know, the country, and, you know, since particularly you can think about, let's say, um, um, you know, in, in in the seventies, eighties, and later on, and you know, after the peace uh, process, uh, etc., then the central government and the military, right, gained increasingly more more stronghold in previously ethnic areas, right. So you can think about major townships um, in those ethnic regions that probably, um, you know, for example, um, due to Let's say uh, peace negotiations and etc. So, like for example, Lasho, like um, think about Michina, those kind of cities, right? These cities has, in some ways, are heavily under controlled by the Myanmar military. Um, but still, right? These are artifacts rather than sort of conventional wisdom, right? Because in 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 a sense that it it is a process where the 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 how to say that the central government expanded its its, its 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 foothold into these regions rather than it has always been the case. Mm. Fascinating. And so I wonder can you can you speak to the results of this phenomenon when this is a country that has seen a lot of violence over I mean I was gonna say since independence, but it's actually seen violence since before independence. Yeah. So 
there, there has been a, a perpetual level of insurgency and conflict in this country for, for well over a century. And you're, you're saying that it seems to be concentrated in these specific types of areas. What type of effect does this concentration of conflict um, like have? Is there, is there any sort of measurable environmental impact or is there any envi- uh, measurable uh, demographic impact impact that that is occurring is there some sort of buffer um where animals and plants are are being eradicated is there some sort of buffer evolving where people are simply fleeing uh these regions of moderate forestry and moderate elevation um so our paper did, does not have anything specifically about those things but from my understanding of it um Myanmar military or Myanmar central government um has always tried to use deforestation as a way to clear out um, the you know the the, the areas um, that are holdouts for different ethnic arms armed groups uh, historically, right? So this has been a pattern uh, before, and which is in some way consistent with uh, evidences from other parts of the of the world, right? I mean, during the Vietnam War, the Americans tried to clear out forests. Basically, then the Viet Cong have no nowhere to hide. So, so these kind of tactics has been uh, in use um, for a long time. Um, so, um, so best, so so we can we can imagine that, for example, uh, uh, you know the uh, you know the. the the, the, the Myanmar government understand it's uh, Myanmar central military uh, understand that it is its advantage is in those sort of easily accessible uh, regions and with transportation links. Um, mm-hmm. So and so you can imagine that um, at least you know during this period, right? And the main um, you know uh, how to say uh, competence uh, or basically between the, the military and ethnic armed groups. So basically, if the Myanmar military was trying to eliminate uh, those uh, uh, you know, ethnic armed groups, and then what they, they would do is try to clear out forests, build transportation links, and essentially gain stronger foothold in those mountain and forest areas and try to eliminate uh, those resistances. Um, so, um, but then, um, you know, but that's a time when they had much stronger, I guess, confidence in itself. Um, I don't know whether they are doing that right now, um, because right now it seems seems to me uh, much more in a defensive mode uh, than than before. Mm. So I just want to circle back and just check one thing there. So you say that they use deforestation, um, and and you bring up the Vietnam example, which I think is very apt. But do you mean that the military itself is deforesting, or do you mean that the military government is? hiring, let's say, logging contractors to disproportionately target these areas? Is this a, a a corporate partnership or is this just being done with firepower and chemicals? I think it's corporate. Um, that, I mean, that has been, you know, studied before in a way that uh, mm-hmm. during the ceasefire negotiations, government, um, you know, central, mil- uh, central government uh, basically um, make use of this ceasefire agreement to to basically inject, you know, let's say capitalist development uh, in the borderland regions in terms of, you know, logging companies, etc. 
Interesting. It's just so strange because when we look at the Vietnam example, famously we had Agent Green and Agent Orange right. being being dumped by the military as a chemical warfare. But here, it's not even chemical warfare. It's it's corporate warfare, utilizing private enterprise to do something that ultimately benefits the military. Right. And they make money. Yeah. Um, but also, you can. <clears throat> so okay, I think this is not necessarily a good comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, there, there is good comparison, but not necessarily a, a very good comparison. So the, the, the not very good comparison part would be that uh, Myanmar military, in comparison with the Americans, um, are probably are less desperate in in terms of its purpose to er- eradicate the rebel groups. So for me, my understanding is that it's tremendous amount of toleration um, uh, as long as it does not go over too much, right? So that's the reason why I think that that's why the ethnic armed group has been in place for a very long period of time. And, and, and I think the military, in some way, tacitly tolerated that. Mm. Um, so, so, which means that they are not in desperate need to use like orange, you know, cage, so for the chemical chemical weapons, et cetera, to really burn out everything, right? I think that's another one. And obviously, the other, the other consideration is the Americans don't consider Vietnam as part of America. So, which means that if they, they basically clear out everything and kill everyone, they don't really care. But I think Myanmar military definitely has this kind of, I, I see, I don't know, this image of self, this is Myanmar, right? So which means, obviously, if you burn, if you, if you destroyed all the environmental, uh, you know, like forests and mountains, probably not going to be good for the country anyway. And then, and also, I think that is empirical evidence also has shown that the military benefits from logging companies. So which means there is this financial consideration there. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I just want to quickly um, touch on the actual data set that you that you use because I want to make sure that we understand what does the what do the data actually tell us and what do the data not tell us. So right. you're looking at a data set from 2010 to 2018. Yes. So this is during the Thein Sein government and uh, part of the NLD government. Mm. Uh, now, is it the case that you are only mm. looking at conflict that exists between the central military and rebel groups? Or are you also looking at conflicts that exist between competing rebel groups? Um, so the data set is um, basically, is, as I said, it's a reported um, militarized conflict. And we only looked at um, fi- fightings between armed groups, uh, ethnic armed groups and the military. Right, so which means we excluded uh, conflict between uh, different ethnic armed groups, which in some ways actually a minority, and majority of, of conflicts still are between rebel groups and the the, the, the military, and um, and in terms of like say uh, this kind of data uh, and its limits, right? So, um, yeah, well, first of all, this this kind of conf- quantitative studies uh, relying upon existing. Uh, data sets uh, of, of conflict usually has its limits. Limits usually are um, because those data, those data points are essentially reported news about what happened in a particular day, in a particular location, right? Mm-hmm. So that means there is a, a bias there, reportage bias in the sense that what if there is conflict, something happened on that particular area or particular day, but there's no new news coverage of it, and then it will not be recorded, right? So that is, I think, is a common problem 
for uh, most of the uh, you know armed group conflicts globally, right? Because it all depends upon news coverage of them. Now, during this period, and I think um, you know, as, as mentioned, from Dancing's period to NLD period, in general, that's relatively open period of Myanmar in a way that is better access, let's put it that way, right? It's definitely more news coverage of the country and then it's better access by both internal media as well as international media for, for Myanmar. So I think that I would say in my confidence of, of the reliability of the data probably better then than now, right? So for example, uh, today, for example, it would be much more difficult to verify and you know whether things happened in a particular day particular location right? because there's not much access into the country but during this particular period I think um, those kind of access should be relatively okay and so you you say it's, it comes down to news reports effectively does that I want because ethnic minority groups you know for example we have the um, uh, the KIA okay, they're they're actually a, a, an army um, but there are political wings of these groups, and these groups do post on social media. They do sort of have their own news service. It's just that they don't use major broadcasts. Um, would would the data collection include reports by these ethnic minority organizations, political organizations, or military organizations, uh, or would it focus on mainstream media? So I think the um, data collection uh, process, so, the, so these are not done by us. It was done yeah. by the ACLED sort of uh, yeah. uh, project, right? Um, so which means, and we, in some way, we also uh, used um, the UCDP data set um, in Uppsala uh, in Sweden as a, as a, as a, as a robust check. Um, so, so the, so which means, so, so the, pro, so the, the, the main um, data that used by these major international data sets, right, not connected, not collected by us, is that they re, they rely, they claim, they rely upon a variety of, of news accesses and then they verify them. So, so I would just basically, we have to trust and a face value at least, you know, the reliability from those data sets. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sad reality of, of doing this kind of work that yeah, we can't, we can't have all the information that we need to have, but it is what it is. Um, so, okay. So let's, let's then move to something that may be a little bit more difficult to speak on because it calls for conjecture. Uh, the, the data set, obviously 2010 to 2018, a little bit, um, I don't want to call it out of date, but mm. it is, you know, a, a different time period. Now that we're looking at the post-coup conflict, mm. the question is, what applicability does this research have to the post-coup conflict? Have you been able to keep an eye on the situation? Would you say that the overall patterns uh, continue to be in place? Um, so, and I think um, during the post-coup period, I think that is uh, some of the conflict dynamics has changed right mm. so i can i can think of that previously most of the conflicts were basically between the central military versus ethnic armed groups but in the post-coup period at least you have resistances by the bama 
majority population, which was not the case before, right? So I think that changed the dynamic a little bit. But at the same time, um, I think the, the, at least from what I read of what's going on in Myanmar, that still majority of those kind of resistances still occur in areas that are um, not flat central plain regions, right? Um, and then and many, uh, for example, uh, resistances, for example, uh, they, they went to mountain regions for training, and etc. Right? So, so which, which means that people do understand the, the, the how to say, the, um, the, uh, the, the shelter and then the coverage and then the, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the just kind of a, a logistical uh, sort of uh, advantages that um, mountain forest regions provide for for resistances for armed groups, right? Mm-hmm. This is because the dynamic of resistance still is asymmetrical in a way that even though you know obviously some people are calling for you know defection of, of the military to the rep, to the to the to the you know PDF etc but then still in terms of actual numbers right that it's the central government Damador still is you know much bigger in, in size and then much much better equipped you know with aeroplanes and with you know with a, with with missiles with you know tanks etc so which means the warfare resistance warfare continued to be asymmetrical so is so which means that if you are in an asymmetrical kind of warfare then you need something to balance out this asymmetry so forest mm. coverage provide this 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 this, this, this advantage for slightly uh, less number you know uh, uh, less numbered and less equipped uh, resistances interesting because we we've seen sort of sporadic attacks that have taken place in in other sort of more conventionally strongly defended places i do remember uh, 2021 the end of 2021 there was a a pretty pretty serious incident that occurred uh in kareni state mm-hmm. um not not too far from the border uh last year if i remember correctly the uh the kachin uh the the kia were holding a uh, an anniversary event um in Kachin that was bombed by the military and, and a large number of people died. Do incidents like this represent a major departure from, from the doctrine of warfare or are these just minor sort of incidents of opportunity that were taken by the military? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think um, my understanding is I, I still think these are relatively uh, unusual events. Mm. Right? They don't represent the major like they say, the mode of conflict today, right? So yeah. perhaps one day the tide of balance between, you know, uh, resistances and, and and the military will change, and then essentially, right, you need those kind of major uprisings across the, the lower plains, you know, in a way mm-hmm. to capture the central part of of, of Burma, right, Myanmar, right? Yeah. And that's basically will be you know, Navy Daw and then Mandalay and the regions, um, but. Um, before that happens, right? I think most of the conflict continue to occur in relatively better uh, covered regions. So perhaps you can have those kind of periodic attacks, like you know, like surprise attacks. But then they tend not to hold 
onto those like regions very long because they had a lack of like you know logistical kind of the supply and, 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 and etc. So that's why, um, and I think I, I, I probably would still treat them as a periodic kind of. Uh, mm. um, but then, as I said, can, this the, the pattern in the post coup period in general is different from the before from before, right? At least yes. there are much larger resistances among the Burma population, and then most of those Burma population live in the lower plains. So I think that is definitely a major difference from before. Oh, absolutely. And so, and, and this is kind of what I want to ask about then is Sagai and, and Maguay divisions, like mm. a very large amount of conflict mm. is occurring in these two divisions. Now, these two divisions are very much to the north mm. uh, or in the northern part of the Bama area. Mm. What can you say about the geography of these regions? Are they more elevated and more forested or are they also plains regions so i i don't know i've never been to maguey or i've been to sagan before but i i my suspicion um is that um okay so i'm basically comf- talking out of comfort and i, I basically mm-hmm. making all uh you know random uh imaginations um um, but I would suppose that, you know, part of those places probably are also difficult to access. They might not necessarily have very good roads. It, mm. I, mean, I remember people talk about, you know, in Magwe, lots of places basically have to reach by river. Um, so, I, so that's one of my guess is basically those kind of places might be like that. Um, or um, there is some kind of defection and that basically led to one region that the much better uh, defended in that sense. Or now, on the other hand, as I said, the the Tamado is relatively probably in a more defensive mode today. So, so probably it did not really try to take them out. Um, so, so my guess is that if they really did, if they if really did try to eliminate those strongholds, they probably would be able to, but they choose not to. So that probably is a reflection of the general defensive mode of military in terms of picking its fight um, for strategic reasons. That's, that'll be my other guess. I mean, that's, that's a reasonably, that, that, like, it's a very interesting um, hypothesis. And I think, I think it's, it's a very reasonable hypothesis as well. Uh, okay. because I'm just m- making random guesses, but I, you know, I, I'm glad that you sort of agree with me on that one. No, I, I do because, uh, again, like my my instinct as well would be to think of Sagaing. Like, yeah, I know Sagaing is a, is somewhat, you know, mountainous, but not right. very well, much so. Obviously, the parts of Sagaing close to India, right? Would that be yeah. more mountainous? But I don't know where exactly those places where fightings are going on. I, I'm not sure whether they're. Yeah, and like I do know though that I've I've seen the 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 conflict heat maps. So most of the conflict that uh, was ha- definitely that was happening last year was towards the south of Sagaing. Mm. Um, so away from that, so it feels very much like the military would be able to steamroll with with the tanks and the helicopters if they really dedicated. Mm. Um, and the fact that the military's defections have historically. Uh, well, I say historically, since the coup, the majority of defections have come from the supporting staff of the military, mm. um, logistics and quartermaster support. It it makes it 
I, I think your perspective makes sense in that context when we look at a world where you have infantry and you have the light infantry divisions, but you don't have the logistics, you don't have the trucks, you don't have the fuel, you don't have the people who can organize the mass movement of infantry from one place to another place. Um, it, it would make sense that potentially the military doesn't feel confident committing a lot of resources to Maguay and Sagaing when that would weaken them in other places and they wouldn't be able to react quickly. Again, I also am guessing here, I'm speaking conjecture, but I think it's an interesting um, hypothesis, definitely. Um, <clears throat> but, but, but I appreciate you talking outside of your comfort zone. I know, I know for a lot of academics, it's a very uncomfortable thing to do. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, as I said, like I, I don't know the topography in, in, in I, mean, I, I suppose it's relatively flat regions, but, um, but also, I guess they are not necessarily the most strategically, strategically important regions. So probably yeah. the, the, the military is, is picking its fight, you know what I'm saying? Mm. The way that reserve its strength in areas that it, it considers most important. Um, and then, and then probably wait. So knowledge is power. And, and the reason we do academia is because we, we want to know things so that we can apply that knowledge. Is there any sort of predictive ability? Is there anything that this research allows us to guess or to conclude about the current conflict and about the direction that the current conflict might go in in the future? Is there anything, any conclusion we can come to? So... Um, as I mentioned, I think, you know, what we described is essentially an asymmetrical warfare, right? Which means that there is this power difference between the central military versus the resistances, right? So, so, the, so, so that means that unless that power symmetry changes, then these kind of resistances will continue to be environmentally related in a particular way, right? So, so my prediction would be that, um, you know, if we are talking about, let's say, you know, if you, if the goal is to have, a, let's say, like, you know, eliminate the military and then like, you know, revolution and then take over the whole country, um, that will require to change this asymmetry of power, right? So which means mm -hmm. that, unless the resistances are becoming better equipped with tanks and aeroplanes and everything else. Otherwise, that will probably be very difficult. So we, so we are likely to see just a, a long-term continuation of this distribution of conflict. Yes. And I think, I mean, you know, obviously we don't know, um, but, I, but I suspect um, the, the most of the resistances and, 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 and you know, conflict in Myanmar will continue to be this low intensity but long-term kind of resistance that has been characterized with, for the country for quite a long period of time. Hmm. Fascinating. So well, I mean, obviously that's the that's the, the the sad part, right? But then again, yeah. um, you know. It's, it's the conclusion that we can come to. Um, so, okay, so I, I, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this topic. Uh, by, by sort of tradition, uh, we always want to end 
uh, giving the guests the opportunity to share some some insight or some thoughts with the audience that that you want people to to leave this interview thinking about or considering uh, as they as they go on about their day and go on about their lives. So I'd like to invite you just to share some final thoughts and some final words. Okay. So um, and I have to say, I mean, I I've been studying Myanmar for for the past I don't know ten years, and uh, and I think. You know, obviously, many many scholars have uh, worked on the country. Um, you know, um, and, but then um, you know, our study is one of the few that are, they use quantitative methods. Um, so that I think I'm, I'm confident to say that this is one of the few studies use data sets and, and a quantitative method to study the country. Now that you know, in terms of method, in terms of methodology, obviously there is not really you know one. Is better than the other, right? But then they provide different perspectives, and I would say, right, in a way that um, you know, quantitative data set tend to have a much more macro views of things, and then um, qualitative views research are more specific in a particular location, and then tend to have more, more have richer and, and more nuanced understandings of what's going on in a country, and then, and I think um, one of the the, the takeout obviously would be that today. Access to the country will become is is very difficult, um, and then and I think people will, will need to, you know, to um, have a sense of what um, type of methodology you know we can use to to continue to study what's going on within Myanmar without this access, right? and I think that is potentially the challenge. But also, I would say these days there are more. Um, you know, globalized quantitative data sets people can have access to. Right? I mean, there are you know, increasingly more, like say, uh, you know, satellite data, uh, and you know, so like lots of you know, geograph, you know, like GIS um, information systems that are providing uh, those kind of uh, uh, data. Right. So, but that require a new set of like, how should I say, methodology or or, or uh, knowledge to use the data sets. Right. Um, so, 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 so that means I think that is perhaps the, the future in a way that, you know, there are more, more data, right. Uh, but then those data might not necessarily be easily accessible in a conventional sort of quantitative historical field research type of way, right. And they are much more macro and also quantitative and all computerized. And um, so I think that is the, um, and I would say that, opportunities uh, in terms of studying the country from afar. Since the coup, Better Burma has provided consistent humanitarian aid to vulnerable communities across Myanmar. Over time, however, we have also come to realize that another consequence of the coup is a severely collapsed economy. Trade and tourism have almost entirely evaporated, and local artisan communities suddenly found every opportunity of continuing livelihood closed off to them. To help support those artisan communities, Better Burma now brings items direct from their workshop into your home. These lovely pieces from a far corner of the world will not only light up your room or make a lovely gift for a loved one, but they'll also help dozens of artisans create sustainable businesses and livelihoods. Part of each purchase will also go towards our ongoing nonprofit mission. To see these beautiful crafts, visit alocacrafts.com. 
That's Aloka, A-L-O-K-A, Crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Of course, as is your preference, you can also consider making a donation through our normal channels. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, ba, da, ba, 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 yaranan, 